1: It was Tuesday, August 29, 1995, and Gold Coast Seagulls chairman Des Bolster announced the Seagulls League's club could no longer afford to support the football club. It was the sad end to another failed incarnation of Gold Coast Rugby League, which had spent the years since the formation of the Giants in 1988, tethered to the bottom rungs of the premiership ladder and routinely hemorrhaging cash, all the while failing to attract any kind of popular support from fans in northern New South Wales or in Queensland. This is part one of Entry of the Gladiators, the 25th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
2: i fantastic. How are you?
1: Ah, uh, likewise. Uh, this is at the second chapter of our second season. We got a ton of really nice messages, emails, you know, Twitter posts, all the rest of it about our first chapter, and people being generally happy that we're back. So, I, I just wanted to say, on behalf of both of us, that that, that really means a lot, and it's um, it's got us really pumped for the the rest of the episodes. It's good to be back. Uh definitely. I, I will say, among all the nice messages we get one persistent criticism we get from a small subset is us never getting to the point of doing a million episodes without getting to Super League. I'll say at the outset, this chapter is probably going to infuriate those people. So uh, if you fall into this camp, maybe push ahead to the next chapter. But I understand the, you know, we've talked about the court case being a major focus of 1996 and thus a major focus of this season of the, the Super League War. I understand the frustration in us bringing you all right to the precipice last week, uh, only to go off on a wild tangent in this chapter. The reason we've chosen to do the story we're telling in this chapter at this point is largely chronological, but I've got to say, this may be my favourite story to date. I love everything <laughs> we're going to talk about so much.
2: I mean, just reading the research, it's probably the most rugby league things I've ever read in my life.
1: Uh, and so this chapter does, of course, centre on the ill-fated Gold Coast gladiators uh, and their flamboyant businessman owner, which I don't think the term flamboyant businessman has ever been used in an unironic or uncoded way. Flamboyant <laughs> businessman definitely stands for something, uh, and you'll see that bear out over the course of this chapter. I've got to say, this story is one that I think in any other time and place would have become a part of rugby league folklore. It would have been told over and over again. It would have been one of those stories we keep coming back to. And yet, it's largely ignored in rugby league.
2: I've got to say, I had literally forgotten everything about the Gladiators
1: Yeah, from that time. I know. I had
2: to Google the jersey, and, and even finding a picture on Google of the jersey was near impossible.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's many reasons for that, as we'll get into. When I say any other time and place... The time is easy enough to understand with everything going on with Super League. It's understandable that, that little moments like this could just be forgotten and get swept into the bigger narrative that, you know, let's face it, almost destroyed our game. But the place is the really interesting thing for me. Given the geography and given the fact of its place as one of, you know, only a handful of ARL teams outside of Sydney, there was no club more roundly ignored during Super League than the Gold Coast. Absolutely. Unwanted by Super League and, you know, in the ARL compared unfavorably with the Crushers who were themselves viewed very unfavorably. Yeah,
2: if you're coming second best to the Crushers, look out.
1: (laughs) So what we need to do to tell the story of the Gladiators is to tell the story of the Gold Coast entering the New South Wales Rugby League in 1988 and go forward from there. Uh, And as I said, it was a real treat for me to research this. So I think our listeners will forgive us the diversion because it's a fantastic story. I want to just spend a bit of time unpacking this idea of El Dorado, why the Gold Coast seemingly, you know, based on all evidence, doesn't work as a sporting location, but why leagues and sports Australia-wide keep going back to the well and keep thinking that they're going to be the ones to crack it.
2: I don't know. Is it the people that go there? I mean, I did notice in the notes there's a lot of Victorians up there, which, I mean, anytime they're involved, there's problems. The AFL died in the wall. They're not going to go over to rugby league type thing. But is it just the people that would go to the Gold Coast? I mean, are they the sort of people that would support a club?
1: Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think there's something about the character of the place. Um, I'll say at the start, my book recommendation for this chapter isn't a book. It's an interview I did with uh, the legendary Mike Eden founding player of the Tweed Gold Coast Giants in 1988. As you'll hear, a very short-lived CEO of the Gold Coast Gladiators and a fantastic rugby league man. Legend. He was gracious enough to give me some of his time. And I got some amazing insight that you'll hear sprinkled through the course of this episode. A very knowledgeable man when it comes to the Gold Coast. And one of the things he said was the fact that it was like a regional area, like it was a country town, basically. But it's a country town that there's no relation to country towns or even regional centres. It is a city, but it's this very weird place. Weird place geographically, demographically. It's just a weird thing.
2: And on paper, no one can be blamed for thinking it would work. I mean, retirees there with plenty of time on their hands, you know, families raising their kids there. You would think that those sort of people would attend football matches, but they just don't.
1: Yeah. And I think as we go along, uh, we're going to unpack the mystery of El Dorado a bit more and put forward some other reasons and maybe ways it could have worked and maybe ways it can still work. So we're going to just get straight into it and start with 1987, really, which is the entry of the Gold Coast Tweedheads Giants into the Sydney competition. And I wanted to start with a quote from Tony Durkin in the Rugby League Week in their October 1988 issue. Uh, when he started his season review of the Gold Coast with, even back in the infant days of the code, it's difficult to imagine a more troubled start by a club. <laughs> now, when I was going over my notes, I'm pulling them from everywhere, all sorts of sources written at all different times. I saw that line and it stood out and I thought this was something that was written you know, in the 90s or the 2000s, like a kind of retrospective look at the troubles of the Gold Coast. But this is like day one, 1988. They're talking about what a basket case and what a difficult start it had been for the club. And if that's not portentous, I don't know what is.
2: I really feel sorry for them because they were in a hiding to nothing.
1: It was always going to be really tough. And a lot of that has to do with the origins as we're going to outline them. So let's get into it. And we'll start with the fact that when they were talking about expansion for the 1988 season, it was always Newcastle, it was always a Brisbane team, and then it was this third team that, you know, there were various options floated, including, you know, Turvey Mortimer's idea of a team at Wagga Wagga, (laughs) but very early on it was viewed that it was going to be Tweed Heads slash Gold Coast, Uh, and that has to do with the fact that it was always viewed that The Tweedhead Seagulls, who were a very successful football team in Group 18, as well as being one of the biggest licensed clubs in New South Wales, it was always viewed that they were going to be the team that came in and got that 16th license. That didn't happen in 1988. uh, And the reasons for that, we discussed in our Birth of the Broncos episode, but we're not going to cover the same ground. So as we all know, anyone who listened to that episode, the Seagulls weren't ready for 1988.
2: They weren't ready for 1998, really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And as we posited in that episode, well, if they're not ready for 88, how about just go with an uneven number of teams? You've dealt with that for the last few years. Just go with 15, and then hopefully in a couple of years, when the Seagulls get their stuff together, they can enter the comp in a better state. But instead, what the New South Wales Rugby League did was to hand the license over to the so-called international syndicate of bob hagan john sattler and peter gallagher and the funny thing about the way it was talked about this is like in february 1988 it was already talked about that seagulls could become joint owners of the giants by the end of the season so even when the license was handed over there was this idea and i don't know how seriously this was discussed at board level at the new south wales rugby league or you know within the syndicate But an idea that the international syndicate were placeholder owners, and the seagulls were eventually going to come in anyway.
2: This is making me laugh. Two episodes in a row now. This option to buy a basket case down the road. (laughs) Like if you're a builder, said, "Would you like to invest in this uh, asbestos cladding uh,
1: we've got?" (laughs) But I got to say, this was the era of that in the Gold Coast. Everything was happening on the Gold Coast at this point in time. So to me, like it kind of makes sense that you know there was this buzz. For a team there and people, you know, wanting to jump in. But regardless, the internationals were handed the license and from the start there were massive problems. And one that keeps getting talked about is the fact that they were effectively shut out of Queensland by this exclusivity deal that the Broncos had got from the league. You know, they had it written in when they got the license that they were going to be the only Queensland team for uh, a period of time, which Different reports will have different dates, but uh, we'll go with three years, which seems to be the most commonly recited period, that there was an exclusivity deal in place that the Broncos would be the only game in Queensland for at least three years.
2: Well, Wouldn't it be a perfect opportunity to take three more years to plan the Gold Coast properly instead of rushing them through and then stuffing them on the Tweed Coast? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I think it should go without saying that a Gold Coast or Tweed team, shouldn't have entered the league in 1988. I don't know how you could possibly mount an argument counter to that. But what I wanted to discuss in reference to this exclusivity deal is when we did our Birth of the Broncos episode and and we expressed, you know, bemusement as to why, why Tweed heads, and we got heaps of people saying, oh, the Broncos had an exclusivity deal, so it had to be Tweed heads. And yes, as discussed, that's true. But the thing is, even before the licenses were handed out, it was being reported as the Tweed Heads slash Gold Coast bid. It was always talked about as Tweed Heads. This was well before the license was decided. So it seemed that it was always going to be Tweed Heads.
2: Well, it comes down to the two things that run rugby league, uh, pokey clubs and on-field performance. So Tweed Heads Seagulls are doing well in Group 18, heaven forbid. So they're the powerhouse club up there. They've got to get a run. And this uh, Garish Pokies Den has all the money, so we have to give them a run as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think that it was the Rugby League way, or at least the New South Wales Rugby League way, that your club was funded by Pokies. Therefore, there's this uh, huge Pokie Den in northern New South Wales. Well, it's natural that the league is going to look at that as being the basis of their operations. And, you know, Seagulls being this, successful football club, it was viewed as a natural fit. So, that kind of explains why the Tweed head was part of it. But I really struggle with why the exclusivity deal was agreed to. I can understand why the, you know, the Miranda Syndicate wanted that exclusivity deal, but why would the league agree to that? Like, why...
2: I think it's perfectly reasonable um, for both sides to ask and agree to it, but then don't undermine it by backdooring them with a team just across the border.
1: Yeah, but in this case, I support the league, you know, so...
2: But to me, it's another example of the league treating the Broncos with contempt.
1: I've got to defend the league here because I think if it was always talked about as Tweed, it always had that slash Gold Coast. Like, I don't think anyone had any doubt that this was the team. It was how it was talked about from the start even when it was viewed that it was going to be Tweed Heads, it was always Tweed Heads slash Gold Coast. And Barry Maranta, in a Fox Sports interview a couple of years ago, said this. I had to ring Quayle and offer to send him down a geography book that showed that north of the Tweed River was Queensland, that the Gold Coast is in Queensland. His response that their field was in Tweed Heads, so he said, that's fine, just call them the Tweed Giants then. But I do dispute that. I think it was always known that it was a Gold Coast bid that was, you know, based at Tweed because of the reasons we've discussed.
2: Well, fair enough. But, I mean, don't call it Gold Coast then. I'm with Miranda on that.
1: Well, this to me goes into the bigger question and and this is what I want to discuss next. It's when they knew that there was going to be a Brisbane team, they got the BRL clubs to agree with it. Should, at that point, they have been thinking more openly about queensland and about the need to you know boost their presence there like why wasn't it thought of then in 1987 that it could be brisbane and gold coast why did it have to be tweed couldn't they have just thought about what was happening in the gold coast thought about what getting the broncos in from the brl would do to the brl and strengthen you know their queensland presence
2: yeah good point it's just uh I think it's fair enough to ask for a three-year exclusivity just to get your feet on the ground if you're a proper business manager and they've agreed to it. So,
1: Well, it's like what we were talking about, you know, the business deals done in our previous chapter. You don't blame the people making those deals for wanting that. It's the New South Wales Rugby League agreeing to it and the ramifications mm. that would have.
2: Uh, if they had refused the three-year exclusivity, the Broncos weren't going to say, well, that's it. We're not going to come now.
1: <laughs> yeah, but like, that's what I mean. Like... The ARL or the New South Wales Rugby League were holding all the cards. They had the Jeans West bid as well. They had the internationals. They had three syndicates vying for these licences.
2: It's been discussed at length, but I love the bid names.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But So what this touches on is this idea of differences between Queensland and New South Wales. These are footballing differences and outside differences, cultural differences and political differences and we can't underestimate the politics of it all as to why this new south wales element was necessary we have to note that this was joe's queensland joe b petersons queensland and i think the implications of this may not be fresh in some people's eyes some of our listeners eyes but like queensland under joe was like in a very real sense a different world
2: I have to recommend uh, the great Ian David's uh, miniseries, Joe's Jury,
1: oh, if you want to all-time uh, classic, check it out. And so one of the things often discussed in terms of the Joe era and Joe in the 80s was the White Shoe Brigade. This was a group of developers on the Gold Coast who were you know, making moves with the support of the national liberal government, so much that there was a, a Sanctuary Cove Act brought in in 1988, allowing for the development of this you know, huge Sanctuary Cove resort.
2: Are you saying to me that uh, white shoes were considered Larry? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm assuming the white shoes is a beachy kind of boaty kind of reference. So these were like, you know, serious businessmen and developers, but they weren't rocking up to meetings in three-piece suits. They were, you know, um, <laughs> a more casual business look.
2: Almost the uh, Dennis Connell look. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Hey, we said there'd be no more yachting references, but we slipped another one in. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of money pouring into the Gold Coast, a lot of political support. And that just kind of makes you think, well, couldn't have the White Shoe Brigade been approached or brought into the mix um, if there's all this money coming in?
2: Well, I think the answer's there are for everyone to see is that they like to make profits, not to hemorrhage <laughs> cash.
1: So, as it turns out, and I mean, I haven't been able to get a one-to-one list of white shoe brigade and thoroughbreds, but I think the inference is that a lot of these white shoe brigade became thoroughbreds. Mm. So, this is something that would come back to hurt the league. But so, the other big political ramification for um, Queensland and New South Wales here is the fact that Joe was holding back pokies. So, there were no pokies in Queensland until he was out of power. So, this... Cannot be understated. This is a massive reason why the league thought that the Seagulls and the New South Wales operations had to be considered. You
2: cannot have a rugby league team unless there is a club sucking the life out of the community. You just can't (laughs) have it.
1: See, I think this is a real failure in thinking from the league. And I understand that this is the way it had always, or, you know, not always, but, you know, for 30 years at this point, this is the way it had been. This is what funded rugby league. But in my interview with Mike Eden, he said once he got there in 1988, he could see that all the money was north of Burley Heads, it, and it seemed that wasn't reckoned with. You know, there, there was a lot of talk as well that, you know, oh, the, the Gold Coast are a weak uh, league division, you know, that they'd only been playing league at a serious level since the 1970s or so, whereas the Northern Rivers, the Tweed region, had been playing since 1914, and it was a, you know, really big group. And a lot of juniors and all the rest of it. And it just seems real old school thinking. You're falling back on the strength of group. You're falling back on poker <laughs> machine money. You're not looking at where the money's actually going.
2: Well, it shouldn't take a genius to work out the money's north of Burley because what's south of Tweed? like Ballina? Yeah. <laughs> board for sharks? Yeah. Like, There's nothing below tweet.
1: Yeah, heroin addicts and anti-vaxxers, not much else. (laughs) Uh, Apologies to our uh, northern listeners.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Very strong group.
1: (laughs) But part of it also is the rate of development on the Gold Coast. And I had to, like, pull myself out of this rabbit hole because I really wanted to go down it and explore further. But the rise of the Gold Coast, there's no Mafia involvement, but it kind of reminds me of one of those stories like, you know, the rise of Las Vegas or anything like that, you know. It went from a population of 80,000 in 1970 to 240,000 in 1990, you know. went from this, like, you know, sleepy coastal little Queensland town to, you know, this booming, like, theme parks and hotel developments and all the rest of it. Like, it's quite a remarkable, like, rise. And, And, you know, maybe that contributes to the failure of sports to, you know, get a foothold there. There's something artificial about the place, you know.
2: I mean, they must do all the research before they put teams there, all different sporting codes. So Mm. it's an actual residential place. It's just got a tacky holiday strip, right? So it still doesn't explain this mystery. This why they won't watch football. People live there. People raise families Mm. there. It's it's insane. Yeah. And when we
1: say 240,000 in 1990, I'm pretty sure the the population of Newcastle now isn't much more than that, right?
2: Please. (laughs) Double or triple that.
1: Okay, right. Well, but I'm sure the Gold Coast is as well. But so I think part of this is the New South Wales Rugby League's long-term strategy in terms of expansion, always related to districts and then later to regions. You can see that with Canberra and Illawarra in 1982, and then again with Newcastle in 1988. So Brisbane was the exception, but it seems the league were thinking of the Giants as more of like a second Newcastle than a second Brisbane.
2: They must have had some sort of foreboding about this whole thing. I mean... It wasn't Newcastle. Let's get that clear. Newcastle was, you know, a league town. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's the thing. They kind of tried to have it both ways and ended up with neither. You know, it's long talked about that they thought they were going to draw in all the New South Northern New South Wales people and all the Group 18 juniors and then also get all the people on the Gold Coast. But it was kind of this team that it seems no one really knew who it was for. So I think that was a big failure initially, a failure to really. Forge an identity, an idea of who this team was and who it was for. The next issue was everything that came afterwards in trying to get the team together. Uh, Firstly, the recruitment, which we discussed in our Brisbane Broncos episode, went poorly uh, in their efforts. They went after basically every off-contract player in Sydney and ended up with very few. So after trying to get all the hot players, you know, like Dez Hasler was probably the best player they went after. He was, you know, in the prime of his career. Going after players of that caliber, having to settle for veterans, you know, players that were coming to the end of their careers. So Ron Gibbs was their marquee signing. The rest, you had Chris Close, who was coming to the end of his career. Uh, Mike Eden, who by his own admission was also coming to the end of his career. And Billy Johnston in the same boat. So I mean you can criticize that makeup of the team but it's a bit unfair because they had tried to go after the you know top talent and had to do with whatever scraps they could get
2: again don't rush them and they could do a much better job
1: Yeah but Bob McCarthy their inaugural coach said that uh, this was in his book in hindsight the club went about it the wrong way instead of going with local players and waiting 5 or 6 years for them to develop into a competitive team the Gold Coast wanted to make an impact in the league straight away with big name players they kind of had to do what they did in trying to attract the best they could. Like, you can't go into the team year one and say, look, we're relying on juniors at the moment. They're probably four years off being ready, but we'll see how we go. Like, you know, <laughs> no one's going to accept that. So I can't blame them for their strategy.
2: Me either. And they also had a team full of juniors, um, except for those five or six yeah. name Sydney players.
1: But it was really interesting getting uh, some of Mike Eden's insights on being at the team in that time.
2: Can I just say, Mike Eden, like I was always so proud that we had a lawyer in the game Yeah, yeah. compared to like marketing officers and you know, whatever else yeah. we had on the back of the footy cards and that Mike Eden was a lawyer. It was like, oh, this is so cool. Well, I fe- Gave us a bit of credibility.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, there were like quite a few like in that era and, you know, going back to, you know, friend of the show, Kevin Ryan, you know, Mike Cleary, and there were always like a few players like who would get like really – top line careers and you know did a lot of study and everything and Poponis. um yeah yeah exactly and, and I, I feel like now you're not really seeing much of that at all are you
2: but they're more into g-ups now than they are uh, to education <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he had some great stories about you know his position in the game then as i said he admits that he had one eye on retirement and it was always going to be a struggle getting the team off the ground when you had five or six players who were, you know, the top players who were more concerned with what they were going to be doing next year or where they were going to end up next rather than, you know, playing and, and trying to have a successful season.
2: You don't want to start off as a transit lounge. Yeah. You can turn into one maybe, but to kick off as a transit lounge. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No good.
1: And then you have to wonder if the coaching, if the whole setup was right when it was very much an old boys kind of setup. You know, you had the, the former internationals running the place. You look at, you know, Sattler's old teammate, Bob McCarthy, comes in to coach. He brings Elwin Walters, Ken Irvine, Graeme Langlands in uh, as assistants, you know. It, it was kind of out of step with the way league was developing. And, yeah, this great story. That I, I'm just going to read it verbatim from Mike Eden. And I'll preface it with him talking about Bob McCarthy because he had nothing but admiration for McCarthy, Sattler, the whole bunch. He said they were just fantastic men. But this is what he said. Even Chang? I, I It's off topic, but I wanted to ask him about Chang, so I'll give you that story after I read this. I didn't think it gelled that well, and I'm not sure that Bob McCarthy was the right guy. I love Macca, he's a family friend, but he was still more of a and Co style coach. He was an old-fashioned coach, blood and guts and glory. Had people like Harry Barth and John Sattler giving us halftime talks, and that was great. But when you look back, having those people try to motivate Billy Johnston, Chris Close, Neil Hunt, Mike Eden, Ronnie Gibbs, it was, you know, we were all past our best and had heard all that before. And it just seems like that's how it was. It's like you get Harry Barth in and he's going to like rev up the boys. But when the boys have heard that speech 40 times and thinking about, well, you know, I can't go too hard today. I mean, I I don't want to really stuff up my body before getting back into my law degree next year. You know, it's like not going to have the same impact as some young, hungry 21-year-old, you know.
2: Yeah, it's quite uh, heartwarming to hear McCarthy still having the fire though.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, back to Chang, I, I had to ask Mike what he thought of Chang, what he was like to work with, and he basically said he was a cranky bloke, very cranky bloke. He didn't give us much. Um, he said some perceptive <laughs> things about, like, what you always hear about Chang was that, like, everyone wanted to help him, and he seemed to carry a chip on his shoulder about that.
2: That they wanted to help him.
1: They wanted to help him, and, you know, like he struggled financially, had health issues, all that sort of stuff, uh, and it seems like he carried a bit of a chip on his shoulder about, the help people were offering. Right. Very complex character, but oh, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so Mike said that he didn't really help out much there when he was at the Gold Coast. Like he wasn't really open to, you know, sharing his expertise. But he said that when he was coming through the grades at Manly, they put him in at fullback um, and he'd never played fullback before. So he went to Graham Eady and said, look, I, I'm you know, I'm playing fullback this week. I don't really know what to do. Do you reckon you could help me out? And Graham Eadie said, well, I'm the first grade fullback. You're the reserve grade fullback. So, you know, piss off basically. Um, So Mike Eden went to his uncle, Harry Eden, who'd played with Graham Langlands in the early 70s and, you know, had friends like, you know, he said that Bob McCarthy, all these blokes were always at his house growing up. So he got lessons in fullbacking off Graham Langlands and Clive Churchill. Jesus. Yeah. So he said he helped him a lot at that stage of his career, but not so much in the Giants era.
2: Well, it's good to hear a positive Graham Langwin story for yeah. once. Uh, <laughs> but I'll say uh, it's not much of an assistant coaching uh, recommendation that you wouldn't help out
1: much. No, exactly. And I think you can see from this that they were a bit out of step with rugby league as it was played then and as it was going. And the old boys mentality was always going to be a battle for them. But that's something that probably could have been overcome, you know, and and maybe Bob McCarthy wasn't the guy, but maybe someone else had come in in a couple of years and it would all be sweet. The more significant issue was hemorrhaging money and not having enough of it to start off with. So in March 1988, uh, Neil Cadigan in the Rugby League Week started a story with the embattled Gold Coast Giants. That was March 1988. Like being referred to as embattled in your first month of existence, that is alarm bells.
2: <laughs> in mean, rugby league, it's not that big a deal. It's like, of course they're in battle. They're rugby <laughs> league
0: club.
1: So in a couple of their trial matches and, and their opening match, they got really poor crowds, which um, you know, gave them a loss of about $50,000. Uh, and Bob Hagen, the chairman of the Gold Coast, said that they budgeted on crowds of 8000 So, a couple of things there. When your viability is reliant on the crowds you've budgeted for, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. When that figure is 8,000 and you can't hit it, that is dire.
2: I mean, 8,000 in the 80s, though, was um, big, I mean, compared to the Sydney crowds, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was the point where we were just starting to climb out of that. You know, you had the opening of the SFS that year. Uh and up upticking crowds leading to the you know, the years in the early nineties when it was on a a real high. But when you had the club just up the road who were, you know, getting twenty, twenty five thousand and eventually getting, you know, thirty and forty thousand, it really stood out as being not acceptable.
2: It's definitely not acceptable, but compare uh, the entire Origin team running yeah. about in a well-organised outfit yeah. in a major city to a ragtag bunch of kids and veterans. You know,
1: Are you saying you can't get 8,000 to the Melbourne Cup with Draft Horses running?
2: That <laughs> <laughs> still makes me sick, that comment, the Draft Horses thing, considering there's legends of the game involved, Peter Gill, et cetera.
1: Yeah, we will get to that, don't worry. But the financial situation wasn't helped when they had a three-year $1.6 million sponsorship deal uh, with the Osrock Cafe fall through within three weeks of it being announced.
2: There needs to be a royal commission into the Osrock Cafe. So th- this was one of those awful chain restaurant things ripping off the Hard Rock Cafe, wasn't it? Not? Yeah, yeah. The 80s and the early 90s was so big on those, I just I can't stand it. I that. know.
1: But uh, as- Except the
2: Hog's Breath, obviously. <laughs>
1: Uh, as part of the, the sponsorship deal, Osrock owner Phil Hart actually claimed that he designed the Giants jersey, which aforementioned Neil Cadigan in an article referred to as Flash, which... <laughs> like, those jerseys are, are possibly the most boring, nondescript jerseys in league history, and that's saying something... <laughs>
2: I've actually grown into them over the years. I remember hating them as a kid, but now I think they look pretty, pretty flash, actually. <laughs> the black, grey, and uh, white. Uh,
1: and those jerseys and the sponsorship were announced with uh, a Rugby League Week cover of Ron Gibbs, their marquee signing, on a motorbike, wearing the Osrock Giants jersey. So when that sponsorship deal fell through, it ended up with court action because Phil Hart claimed that he designed the jerseys and Therefore, they didn't have the right to wear them. Uh, But more significantly, Phil Hart was also the manager of Ron Gibbs, so he set up the contract and the signing. And man, that signing like just led to so many issues. We discussed it on our 1987 issue. For some reason, that was deemed too much for Manly fans who were, you know, booing him at Brookvale, demanding he give back Terry Randall's jersey, all the rest of it. Uh, And it only seemed to cause trouble from there. So, the reasons for the sponsorship falling through, uh, it's a bit of a he said, he said. So, Phil Hart said that the consortium hadn't delivered on some of the things they'd promised. In his book, intriguingly, John Sattler said that Phil Hart was angry at their decision to use Ansett as their air carrier.
2: What's he got against Ansett?
1: I don't know. I saw you highlight that in your notes you sent back to me, and I didn't go as far as looking into it. So... I don't know if he had shares in Qantas or, or what, but uh, <laughs> apparently he wasn't happy at that. Uh, and then, yeah, these other terms weren't met in Phil Hart's eyes and he dropped out.
2: How Rugby League is it for a sponsor, a major sponsor to be out within the first month of the club's existence?
1: Especially when it's trumpeted as this massive thing that gets a cover of the Rugby League week, you know? like It's kind of rare that a sponsor gets that kind of buzz and for it to all fall apart within the space of a month is crazy.
2: But you'll hear about it even into modern times. Like, it's a common phrase to hear, oh, that sponsorship's fallen over. Yeah. It's never like, why, has it? It's always just like, yeah, it's (laughs) fallen over. Uh, Third-party deal's fallen over. Um, Okay, why? Is there not a contract obligating both parties?
1: You'd think 30 years on we'd be somewhat closer to figuring this all out, but it actually seems to be getting worse. It's so funny how much drama this one signing caused – this isn't a slight on ron gibbs who you know had a career year in 87 unlucky to miss origin and, and was viewed as a really intimidating one of the top forwards in the game at the time but i mean he's not going down as as an all-time grade of rugby league it's funny that there was this much drama about this one contract
2: it's a classic rugby league on field uh recency bias yeah better sign him up for a ton of dough
1: a- and the other recency bias was Ron Gibbs signing and then watching or and, you know, being a key part of Manly going on to win a premiership that year, having second thoughts about making the move up, trying to get out of the contract, ending up going up, but having things not fall into place uh, as he wanted in a, not the last time we'll use this word in this chapter, but in a farcical manner, the deal (laughs) fell apart and ended up in court as so many things to do with this club would over the next few years. So he said that he was offered, as part of the contract, some land in Palm Beach with a house, you know, right by the sea, Uh, and instead he was given land quite away from the coast. He was promised a cushy job, in his words, uh, but ended up (laughs) getting the offer of working on the ground staff at Seagulls Stadium.
2: Shades of Brett Kenny in that complaint. I've got to ask Ron, to Ron and his representative. Why didn't they specify the lot number and address of the property yep. that they were promised mm. as opposed to just a general promise of a property somewhere?
1: So it ended up in court in 1993, and this was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald. Gibbs recalls the Gold Coast originally supplied him with photos of the promised two hectare block at Mount Tambourine, but by the time he went up to check it out, the real estate agent told me that a lady owned it. And I said, you're bloody kidding. Then I went and saw the Giants again, and they offered me another five acres, but the second five acres wasn't as good as the first five.
2: Through music, through sports, there's always these stories of people, I've got stuffed over by the manager or whatever. It's like, yeah. there's got to be some onus on the individual to think about their own well-being. Like, yeah. yeah.
1: It also probably demonstrates that a rugby league contract should be payment for playing rugby league in cash. It shouldn't involve <laughs> like five acres in Mount yeah, I,
2: I, I'm just glossing over the fact that we're in property again <laughs> like, because that's the common occurrence that property and rugby league intertwine. But have you ever heard of a, there was a successful property investment in rugby league? <laughs> you never hear that. It's always a-
1: so, And the other part of it, the cushy job that he was promised on the one hand, it highlights the bogus nature of rugby league jobs at this point in time, but the fact that he was expected to mow the football field rather than <laughs> don the, the club polo for a marketing officer role, that also shows you how much that the Giants were battling. They couldn't afford to give him a fake job. They had to like fire a groundsman uh, and pay Rambo to do it.
2: I think when LeBron went to the Heat, he was um, he was toweling down the court before <laughs> games, marquee signing. <laughs>
1: Uh, so I think this should adequately express the reality that the Gold Coast tweetheads, whatever you want to call them, they were in a heap of trouble in their first year. And to remedy that, they needed one of two things to occur, either decent crowds or better than expected on-field results. The, the latter was probably never going to happen, given the cattle they had. The crowds were basically appalling throughout the year, so there was apparently a, a lot of bad weather, a lot of rain over the course of that season, which was commonly cited by, uh, you know, members of the international syndicate as being excuses for why they couldn't get the crowds. There's some validity in that, you know, the rain, you know, heavy rain will stop people from coming. It'll, you know, bring your attendance down. That's a given. But it's also not an acceptable excuse, given it's a winner sport, uh, given, you know, like there's always going to be rain you need to be able to do better than that you're clutch
2: against drawers right i mean
1: yeah but at least there's a basis to that as an excuse it's like well we would have got twelve thousand, but it pissed down so um you know they didn't show up okay you can maybe accept that but what's not acceptable is blaming tv coverage and bob (laughs) hagan had a mixture of those two in march 1988 when he said who in their right mind would travel up 100 miles in pouring rain to watch a game of football which is on television, either live or half an hour after the kickoff. It's like, mate, this is the game you're in. (laughs) Yeah. And also, when the first thing you say about people attending your football team playing is, who in their right mind?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel really bad for this guy, but he's the one in charge, right, Hagan?
1: Yeah. But there's something illustrative in that statement, how he says, Who in their right mind would travel up 100 miles? It's not who would travel down. Mm. It's still focused on that northern New South Wales. Great point. So I think this goes back to that struggle for identity and the Sydney-centric nature of the way the club was run.
2: I'm not an expert on northern New South Wales, but they've got a bit of a manly vibe about them, i.e. not leaving my little town there with the beach and the local club. Yeah,
1: yeah. And maybe it was just it was always going to be too dispersed to really have a strong identity, especially if like it's feeding into the group 18, all the teams that Tweedhead Seagulls were playing against for, you know, a number of years, you know, there might be some animosity from, you know, the other nearby towns.
2: Well, that's almost like the rain excuse. You, know, <laughs> you can say that about the Newcastle comp and the BRL. Couldn't
1: yeah. You- so regardless, the season went badly in April, 1988, The Seagulls staged a 90-minute sit-in at uh, the Seagulls' number two oval, which was a meeting open only to players, officials, and staff. Hagen said it was barred to outsiders. Uh, It was frank and open with no holds barred. So that was in April 1988. Surely that's got to set a uh, rugby league record for honesty sessions. Surely one month in, that has to be a record.
2: (laughs) One month into the club's existence. Yeah, tough to beat.
1: But so... No money, no players, no fans. Prospects were grim at the end of 1988. I forgot to mention this, but with the no money, Mike Eden said that, you know, things were really tight. When they were going to Sydney, they were flown down and and flown up on the same day. They didn't take a team of, you know, physios, the rest with them. They'd hire casuals in Sydney that would treat them and then, you know, they'd be on their way. He said that they weren't given their jerseys at the end of the year, that, you know, they were kept by the club. Uh, he said that he had to go to the gear steward Tommy Lemonade to <laughs> to grab hold of one.
2: Is that in the top ten rugby league names? A, of all A time? great
1: rugby league name. Who actually the the name actually came up again over the course of my research. I hadn't heard the name before. Mike Eden mentioned it to me, but uh, somewhat of a Queensland legend, Tommy Lemonade. So yeah, shout out.
2: That would have done the mafia proud.
1: <laughs> but so anyway, so a bad season all round.
2: What sort of club is reusing the jerseys? I mean, I know they're flash, but, I mean, <laughs> surely after a year of use, they wouldn't be like spick and span for the 1989 yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> And do you think Sattler's wife would have been the one washing them to save on <laughs> some bills there? <laughs>
2: Make sure you water down the um, <laughs> detergent, love.
1: <laughs> so poor on field, no money, no players, no fans, uh, real... Issues for the the long term viability of this club. Uh, What do you do about it? Uh, You send Bob McCarthy on a fact finding mission to NFL clubs in the US, of course. (laughs) So after the season, they flew McCarthy to look at the New York Giants and the LA Rams to, to look at their setup. A long standing rugby league tradition. But I've got to ask you this what actionable lessons could the Tweed Heads Gold Coast Giants? possibly have gathered from visiting NFL facilities.
2: It's one of the great rugby league tenants, Pennywise, Pound Foolish. Yeah. They're reusing the jerseys, but they're on a five-week tour of the US to talk to um, the Pittsburgh Steelers about their Super Bowl win, and they're like, well, uh, have you got good players? No. Do any money? No. Well, you can't win. You can't win the Super Bowl. I'm sorry.
1: It's staggering.
2: Good on Bob McCarthy. They, he would have had a good time. You know that. I always think about, like, what the NFL clubs were thinking of the rugby league guys that were coming in through the 80s and 90s. I know. Or even to today, for that matter. But
1: But so whatever lessons uh, Macca could bring back obviously wasn't enough. And at the end of 1989 season, the Tweedhead Seagulls officially took over the license. So they had picked up the baton from the Osrock Cafe and they'd sponsored the Giants Uh, But come 1990, it would be the Gold Coast Seagulls from there. So we should probably spend some time talking about Seagulls, the club, and what that meant.
2: It's so confusing. So just for people like me who always get confused, it went from Giants to Seagulls to Gladiators to Chargers.
1: Yep, And that's in the space of seven years. Good Lord. So those Giants jerseys, the biggest thing on them was the Seagulls emblazoned across the front as the major sponsor. (laughs) And that kind of tells you something about where the Seagulls were at in comparison to the international syndicate, who, you know, it was clear weren't going to be able to keep it going. So in his book, Sattler said, on reflection, we should never have been given the license in the first place. The league had initially planned to issue just one license, and that's how it should have stayed. But with interest in the game at fever pitch, the league wanted to strike while the iron was hot. As a result, common sense came a distant second to the sport's thirst for growth.
2: It just goes to show the power of these clubs, these pokey clubs, because who else besides an institution with endless rivers of blood money could afford to pick up a
1: basket case like this? Yeah, exactly. And so, so that's a good context to put Seagulls in. So at the time, they were one of the biggest clubs in New South Wales, uh, and a lot of the money was actually coming from Queensland. So many of their members were from Queensland. This was in no small part due to the bus pack promotion they had running, where they would uh, send a bus to Queensland and bring people down by the busload to gamble at. Well, not gamble. You know, they were you know they were there to uh, be entertained. En- what are you talking enjoy about? Enjoy the wonderful entertainment. Uh, you know, the lovely food on offer. They were even given free food. This just goes to show what a community-minded venture the Seagulls were.
2: Well, I've always loved paying two and a half grand for a chicken Kiev. <laughs>
1: And so I, I, in research for this, got hold of the 1989 Seagulls annual report. It's not the first annual report of a licensed club I've read by any means, but any time you read one, you're just reminded of like what vile leeches these people really are. Like the way that there'll be this flowery, like you know, president's report where it will talk about you know the um, hey, and I'll find a, a direct quote. So this is uh, John Edwards, the general manager. The returns from the club's poker machines were made possible by continued patronage during difficult times, and these bear testimony to our successful promotions and continued poker machine replacement program. So those difficult times, a a nationwide recession that we were in, uh, but, you know, we're still bringing the busloads in and, um, you know, we're doing a really great job there. Yeah, animals. Uh, So that bus pack promotion uh, ended up in court. It had to be suspended for a while. Uh, But i got to say the entertainment they were pulling in uh, was top-notch. So highlighted by John Farnham playing a concert at Seagull Stadium, uh, attracting 9,000 people, which is more than most of the Giants games. (laughs) A real, like, taking me back to my childhood, looking at some of the names they were getting in 1989, 1927, Transvision Vamp, Johnny Diesel and the Injectors, Jenny Morris. Great names. So all the big names. I was, like, very offended that they had a picture of Glenn Campbell as playing there, but didn't mention him as one of the highlights. I was outraged by that.
2: Yeah, it's a huge get.
1: Elise Platt, another one of the entertainers, big Elise Platt fan back in the day.
2: Well, could she sing as well, could she?
1: Apparently so. I wonder if her and Tony ever did duets. He was a Tony Barber, a famed uh, singer as well. Yeah. But so they were a big club. They took over as owners from 1990. And we're not going to go, you know, blow by blow over the next couple of years. Suffice to say, things didn't really improve on field. But they were given a major lift in terms of their presence by the arrival of Wally Lewis in 1991. Which can I just um, ask for your memories of that at the time?
2: I can remember being excited about it. It felt like, oh, this is it now. They can you know get somewhere with the king. I didn't really understand past your prime and you know veterans at that age. So I just thought, yeah, oh, yeah, it's, exactly. It, it's Lewis, so they're going to be good. And I didn't like understand did- captain coaching.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it did actually legitimize them. Like they were a team I thought about suddenly yeah which yeah. I don't really have any memory of them except for knowing they existed before then, but like I remember the seagulls. I went to a seagull's game once, and you know I was excited about it.
2: well they couldn't have done any better for themselves than to get Lewis, yeah, so after all the amateurish moves, this was probably the best thing they could have done,
1: yeah, and the way they got him, the way it fell out at the Broncos in some ways is really telling in terms of everything that happened with super league, so Lewis uh was. You know, falling out of favor with Wayne Bennett, not really willing to accept, in his eyes, a diminished role in the team. The captaincy had been taken away from him, but he had no thoughts of leaving the Broncos. He thought he'd be able to work something out. And he basically, through his manager, couldn't negotiate a deal that was to his satisfaction and was, you know, rapidly running out of patience. And then it turned out that the Broncos were only going to offer him $50,000, which was, you know, basically a third of what he would have expected.
2: It was less than Ron Gibbs and no property.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so after a back and forth, he was like, well, I'm going to call their bluff. I know they want me out. I'm just going to say, right, I'll take the $50,000. So he went in to see Rebo, uh, who was, of course, the chief executive of the Broncos then, uh, and said, I'll take the 50000 And Rebo said, well, I mean, I'm sorry, you're valued by the New South Wales Rugby League at 150000 so we can't offer you $50,000. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to release you. So that was it. So the King was out of the Broncos. So what
2: does that mean? He was valued. Is that part of the early salary cap?
1: Yeah, it was a weird kind of scheme that the New South Wales Rugby League had set up uh, and, you know, had been tinkered with over the years. And in 1994, that became a real flashpoint with proposed changes to the system. It seemed that that was going to really negatively impact the Broncos and Raiders in particular. So that became a, a real source of tension between the league and these clubs throughout 1994.
2: What possible advantage can you have of having the ARL or the central body in rugby league rating players'
1: values? I mean,
2: is there ever going to be an agreement? You know,
1: <laughs> And it just goes back to what, especially in the 90s, it, these new systems would come into vogue Again and again, variations of them would be talked about and it'd be, you know, there'd be discounts for this player and this player's worth this much. And you know, one system we're going to talk about in 1996, the ARL were proposing like not salary base at all, but just points. Every team got 70 points and international yeah. was worth 10 points. And
2: it was the early super coach.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, you can't work it out when it's just a straightforward system. Why do you think you're going to be able to? Do all this maneuvering and work it out when you've got these 20 exemptions and 50 different values and all the rest of it.
2: Wally's the key example. That, uh, he's an immortal. He's played for Australia 40 times, but Wayne Bennett doesn't think he should be in first grade. So is he worth 150000 or 12000
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. So it just doesn't work, and it didn't work in this case. But the end result is Wally is off to the Gold Coast. His first match at Seagulls attracted over 13000 which was only the second time in their history they had reached that figure. The first time was in 1988, when Wally was, of course, on the other team playing for Brisbane. So it instantly made an impact. What it didn't do was really improve things on the field, uh, and that led to him taking over as captain coach for 1992, which even at the time I was like, what do you mean?
2: It felt like the 70s, didn't it, even then? Yeah. Especially a guy whose communication skills at the time were not... World class,
1: yeah. Reportedly, but what he did have was the players behind him. Like it didn't seem at any point he lost the dressing room or anything like that. It just seemed like I mean, he, it goes back to the draft horses call. Like you know, I don't know what coach could have done better with the team that they had.
2: <laughs> I agreed, but what coach would have said that? <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a lot of things that's just crazy that. These quotes were said. So I'm, I'm really excited to get into this portion of the episode. So again, we're not going to go, you know, match by match while he is captain coach or 1993, his, you know, non playing coach year. But that year really highlighted some serious issues with the club and showed that the management problems that may have existed with the Giants got no better at all once the Seagulls took over uh, in administering the club. So as 1993 went on, it became increasingly clear and increasingly public that there was a serious disconnect between the players and management. Uh, And this really came to the boil uh, in July of 1993 where Wally Lewis was quoted in the Sun-Herald as saying, Board members have flown first class to Sydney, stayed at five-star hotels, and been ferried around in chauffeur-driven stretch limousines. While the club won't pay for our medical staff, trainers and physios to stay overnight at a $65 hotel room. They fly back first class straight after the game, or we've got to hang around until 10 o'clock to get on at a discounted rate.
2: Is that accurate or is that hyperbole?
1: It seems pretty accurate. I don't have every figure, but it is in line with everything else that was happening with their financial situation at the time, as we'll get to a bit later. So it seems accurate. Legitimate grievances. uh, Highlighted a, a genuine disconnect between players, coach and management, uh, but that getting out in public so openly by Lewis, that was always going to cause a big drama. Uh, the next day, the Gold Coast Chief Executive, Vic Folotarek, uh returned serve by saying that Wally Lewis was not a good coach and was welcome to leave. <laughs>
2: that culture of those club guys, you know, like you know, licensed club style, managers, football club managers, where it seems like they don't really care about the football team, they just care about their junkets. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, And So basically, from this point on, it was open war. It was just a public slinging match between Wally and the management. I mean, it's amateur even for rugby league, but um, some of it is so funny, some of the things going back and forth. Their football manager, Greg Bandiera, was one who was... You know, he and Wally were at each other's throats, both basically saying that only one of them would be there in 1994, that neither of them could stay while the other was there. But so, also in a Sun Herald article, Bandiera said, I went over the contract with a fine tooth comb, and the wording of Wally's contract is quite strange. It clearly doesn't specifically state the words first grade. In my book, by offering him the lower grade job, opens the door for the club to get rid of him. I see it as an out for the club to part with Wally Lewis, which great plan, why are you announcing the details of that plan in the paper before you've like, exacted the plan? <laughs>
2: but he's the one guy drawing any sort of interest for you as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Um, so Bandiera said he was misquoted, so the Sun Herald came back by standing by the story and publishing the interview they did with him in full. Uh, Bandiera was then shortly after sacked as football manager. Uh, but, you know, this shows that the club was, like, brazenly trying to get Wally to quit so they could avoid paying him out. Poor
2: Wally's had a bad run with contracts, did not he? Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it was an untenable situation all round. But regardless of Wally's merits as a coach, which, you know, I mean, he didn't go on to great heights at the Seagulls or anywhere else, regardless of however valid any personal grievances were, and, you know, he was on the record as being a very prickly character at that point in time, how was it in any way going to endear a Queensland public to the team slamming Wally Lewis in the press?
2: (laughs) Yeah, genius uh, promo.
1: Just absolutely boneheaded. So it was a complete basket case of an organisation, but it was clear it was untenable. So the New South Wales Rugby League, sent Don Ferner up to be an interim football manager after Bandieri got sacked. He negotiated a mutually agreeable payout for Wally. Wally was out and, you know, it went on from there. And that leads us to 1995 where it all fell apart for the Seagulls.
2: So that was the Gold Curse together before 95, was it? And then it fell apart. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah,
1: 1995 was the, the point that it fell apart for the last time. Well, at least in terms of the Seagulls. But so this season, as well as being the year the shit hit the fan, really put a spotlight on just how bad a franchise they'd been in their eight seasons of existence to that point. I mean, if you look at their record, 1988 to 1995, so their attendance record of 13,423 set on May 8, 1988 against the Broncos, never beat it from there attendance record in your first year their on-field record position on the premiership ladder so from 1988 onwards 15th 14th 15th 16th 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 15th Uh, and then in 1995 they finished 17th in a 20-team comp and that shows you some progress except for the fact that in that 17th it was actually a four-win season which was one less than 1994 where they won five games So they were going backwards as a club, and had you know never been able to get off the bottom.
2: It's genuinely sad. Think of the morale of the players in in those years.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned before you can't start as a transit lounge. When you start as a transit lounge, continue as a transit lounge with no on-field success, and you know no support. That seeps into the culture. That becomes your culture. So they were basically a team without any purpose, and. I mean, if you look at other teams, you know, like Parramatta, I think won like, you know, five or six wooden spoons out of their first 10 years, you know, other clubs start this badly, but there didn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel. The irony is in Wally Lewis's last year as coach, he started to bring through a set of juniors that could have been the basis for something. So in 1993, uh, you saw the first grade debuts at the Gold Coast of Kevin Campion, Wayne Bartram, Jamie Goddard, Jason Hetherington, Scott Sattler, Adrian Vowles, and Terry Cook—all
2: Origin players.
1: All Origin players. When you add Ben Ayton coming through in 1995, like that group, that's a team that you know it might not win you the Premiership that year, but that's the basis of something. So they were like kind of finally starting to get the juniors coming through, and and maybe there were better times ahead. But just this catastrophic management meant that. You know, most of those players left and the club could never be an on field success.
2: Well, it's almost become a joke, in you know, I Believe, you get the front office right, like Jack Gibson says, and the yep. rest follows. But yep. I mean, is there a better example of that?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: But if they'd started in 92, four years after the, uh, you know, yep. the Broncos come in, then by 93, these juniors are coming through, it's building up like a real club.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mentioned some of the tension between Wally and the club. Uh, and one of it being the disparity between how the players were treated and how the management were, were acting, you know, flying down and seemingly in luxury while the players struggled. This was really showcasing how much they were struggling financially. Uh, it all came to the boil one match in 1993 where they were playing against Illawarra and were put up for the night in what they described as a caravan park. I think to be fair, from reading between the lines, I think it was actually probably more like cabins, uh, but still like <laughs> still it just shows you that they didn't have the money. They were billing players for their traveling clothes, you know, as Wally mentioned sending them on late night flights to save money.
2: I don't have any real sympathy for them staying in cabins. I mean, who cares like the young footballers most of them. But the management have got to show that they're tightening their belts as well, otherwise in mm. rugby league, you're creating one of the biggest rifts ever.
1: Yeah, but it just contributed to this cycle of failure that they were never going to get out of. And Wally had an illustrative quote in 1993. He said, he was asked if they would have a stronger side next year and he said, well, I don't think so. I don't think it can be. We can't afford to go buying players. All we can do is invite players to come. The club have said they've got to cut players. The financial situation has it that they just can't match offers from other clubs. And when you've got that situation and you can't afford to attract players, well, you can't afford to be in the competition. And it all came to a head in August of 1995 when Chairman Des Bolster announced that they were pulling out of the competition from the end of 1995, saying that they lost $14 million since they took over the license and you know they couldn't afford it anymore. Hell of a business. And so Bolster, who Roy Masters described as an emotional Bolster, was quoted <laughs> as saying, There's been no money spent on our licensed club since 1989. (laughs) We have to refurbish the club to meet the challenge of poker machines in Queensland. Well, Des, cry me the fucking Amazon. Seriously. Like, just get out of football. Like, why? (laughs) I I will (laughs) never understand it.
2: Appealing for sympathy because you couldn't refurb the club. They're obsessed with refurbing clubs, these people. they're, They're gross no matter what they do.
1: I know. That quote did touch on something we hadn't hit on, which is another big reason that the Seagulls were in trouble was that poker machines had been introduced to Queensland in uh, 91 or 92. Uh, so that was you know seriously affecting their bottom line. So that combined with all the money they were hemorrhaging on the football club meant that they were suddenly in real trouble.
2: This is one of the worst club stories I've heard yet. I mean, we always hear the oily rag story, like they couldn't even afford an oily rag.
1: I know, and it just keeps getting worse. But just an interesting historical wrinkle. This is a bit of a side note, but when it was announced that they were pulling out of the league, there was a lot of talk on what they would do the following year. One of the options suggested was that they could play in the newly expanded Queensland competition. I don't know if it was called the Queensland Cup team, but something... Arriving at what we know as the Queensland Cup now with teams playing from all over the state. One of the teams in that competition was a Papua New Guinea team, yeah. which meant that it wouldn't have been financially viable for the Seagulls to play in that competition. Um, but it's really interesting in light of all the talk in recent years about Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. You know, we've got Papua New Guinea playing in the Queensland Cup now. We've had all Tonga success. Uh, and, you know, the rise of Oceana in the international game. But let's just remember that there was a Papua New Guinea team in the Queensland Cup in the mid-90s. We had Tonga very nearly beating New Zealand in the 1995 World Cup. I think it's a, a reminder that no success in rugby league is ever guaranteed. And we've got to keep our eyes on the prize in terms of international development. Um, but that's just an aside. Uh, and Des Bolster tried to build on the sympathy he got for you know, the club needing a new carpet by saying that the ARL gave money to Newcastle and the Crushers. All we're asking is for them to give us the same amount to us and we'll be fine. And you know, the ARL put forward a number of suggestions to help them. One included seeking external financial support and moving up the road to Carrara to finally establish themselves as a true Gold Coast team, to which Des Bolster said, we would have been extremely happy to... Stay at Tweed Heads with the same $2.5 million the Crushers received. It's big of you, des, you, you would have been happy with that, would you?
2: The amount of, like, arguing over handouts in Mobile League as well is like, take what you're given.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. He said, I believe other clubs were offered amounts far higher than us. All I can say is that we didn't get the financial package we needed and that we made the only responsible decision we could make. We weren't asking for the world, just what the other clubs were offered.
2: What's stopping them getting a sponsor?
1: Yeah." Yeah, I mean, if you can't do that on your own, well, it maybe shows you that the interest isn't there. So, why do we need you as a team? But it conveniently overlooks the fact that they'd been bailed out by the league only two years before in 1993. (laughs) So, part of that was Don Ferner coming up. Uh, Alan Clarkson in the Herald in 1993, in talking about what the league was doing for the ARL, said, Gold Coast were ready to pull out of the premiership until the New South Wales Rugby League stepped in with a dramatic rescue package. So I don't know exactly what was in that rescue package on top of Don Ferner. Um, It doesn't specify how much money, but the fact is that they had bailed you out. They had saved you from pulling out of the competition two years earlier, and now you're just here demanding $2.5 million because they helped the Crushers out.
2: When you were going through the annual report, did you see what they were paying Des Bolster?
1: That was before his time. But here's the wrinkle. This is where it gets interesting. So they pulled out of the licence in August 1995, but the condition was that they weren't actually pulling out. It was just that the Leagues Club was withdrawing financial support. So the football (laughs) club, they were attempting to secure $5 million to retain the licence so that the Seagulls Leagues Club wouldn't have to pay. So at this stage, even though the Leagues Club was saying, we don't have any money, we can't pay for the club. They were also saying, oh, but we, we still own the license, so you can't do anything because we're going to try to get the money elsewhere to you know, stay in business.
2: How many times have we heard that, like South Juniors and South all the rest of it, like the league club and the football club yeah. fighting, and as kids you just think, but wouldn't they love football as much as we love football and love the as, team?
1: As <laughs> an adult, I think that. <laughs> So, from this point on, from the end of August, it basically became a scramble to secure some financial support. And that saw the institution of another time-honoured rugby league tradition, a Save Our Seagulls campaign was set up. (laughs) Which I would have to assume is the least supported Save Our (laughs) campaign in rugby league history.
2: Oh, my God. A documentary on that would have been brilliant. (laughs)
1: Uh, And so this was, uh, interestingly, spearheaded by Ben Eichen's dad, Alan Iken.
2: It would have been run out of a Toyota (laughs) Taraga. Seven people.
1: And I think um, Ben had already signed to go down to north by this point. So I think this went beyond just, you know, his son playing there. I think he was a Gold Coast businessman who really believed in the team and the area and wanted to keep the dream alive. I love that. And so basically, it was Alan Iken and the rest of the Save Our Seagulls uh, trying to work out a package, trying to get some money together for the Seagulls to retain the license. And at this point, you had a rival group come in who were spearheaded by a property developer, Brian Ray, who was actually part of that White Shoe Brigade, uh, and also an associate of Kerry Packer. So you had Ray and Kerry Packer involved as well in a rival Gold Coast bid if the Save Our Seagulls couldn't get the money up. Uh, and this goes back to thinking that maybe the strategy in 1987 should have been to actively court the White Shoe Brigade and, you know, and private funding rather than the league's club model. You know, again, the league wasn't at that point then, but here we were in 1995 and Brian Ray is keen. He wants to get involved. It was actually a stop start process, this Brian Ray group, because of negotiations with Gold Coast Council. So the idea here was to move the team. To Carrara. And, you know, for a while it looked like the bid was off because they couldn't get the necessary approvals. Um, but then eventually it got back on track and it looked like this was the way that they were going to go. And if they did go with the Brian Ray group, this would have meant the end of Seagulls involvement. So it was either save our Seagulls, Alan Iken et al. getting the money to help the Seagulls retain the license, or that falling through and Brian Ray coming in and giving the club. You know, presumably a new identity. You know, he might have retained the valuable Seagulls brand, um, but more likely we would have seen a fresh start in Carrara and a Gold Coast team. This caused a lot of friction between the league and the Seagulls, with Des Bolster once again, you know, feeling aggrieved that the league wasn't backing him. So John Quayle came out, was asked if his first choice was the Seagulls. And he said, Not at this stage, because I've got to say that now the consortium information has been lodged with the league. It's been, to date, very exciting. And I suppose now we have to look and see what's in the best interest, not only of the league, but also of that area. And those comments were put to Des Bolster, who said, if he said that, then we're surprised. And I must say, very disappointed. It's like you've lost $14 million in five years. You've pulled funding for the club. You've already been bailed out once. You've had these public slanging matches with Wally Lewis. And you still think you have the right to feel aggrieved and feel like you have an eternal right to the Gold Coast license?
2: The entitlement. like The White Shoe Brigade, like you said, I think that's a key part of this episode, what you said at the start. If they went the White Shoe Brigade at the start and had it like the thoroughbreds, it might have been a different story long term. Because what league club model has ever worked? I mean, even clubs with success are always like on an oily rag.
1: You could already see it in the 80s. Like, you know, Canterbury missed the finals in 87 and that put them in serious risk. Parramatta won three comps in a row and were asking for a hand-up from the league at the end of that run. You know, and they're two well-performing clubs with big leagues clubs. You know, all the evidence was there that even in the 80s, like, the leagues club model wasn't working, you know? And again, like, the league was at a different place in 1987. Clearly, they should have gone down the White Shoe Brigade route They had their, you know, their regional mindset and couldn't make that move. So I do give them blame, but I also think you have to put it in that historical context. I don't think they were there yet in terms of their Mm. thinking. But so all this was playing out through September, October, November. And it was basically being reported by early December that the Brian Ray Group were over the line and, you know, any day would be announced as the license holders. So on the 14th of December, 1995. Brad Walter, friend of the show for the Australian Associated Press, wrote that the New South Wales Rugby League board had been expected to give the go-ahead for the Brian Ray group to base a site out of Carrara Stadium but delayed any announcement after an unidentified property developer applied to field a team at Seagulls Stadium. <laughs> so that unidentified property developer is, of course, Jeff Muller, who uh, will be the focus of part two of this chapter. And then on the 19th of December, it was announced that Muller had secured the license. Brian Ray was out. Muller would get the license, and that was um, basically linking up with the Seagulls. So the Seagulls would retain their identity, but with Muller's financial backing.
2: Is it uh, a harbinger of things to come when the guy's listed as unidentified <laughs> <laughs> property developer? How sinister is that? Surely they knew his name if he's put a bid in, like...
1: And it hasn't really come up, or at least I haven't found any reporting of it as being exactly what happened. But one thing that uh, was strongly suggested was that it all came down to those loyalty agreements signed in February, that basically, under the law, the Seagulls had the license, and if they had the wherewithal to pay for the team, then that license couldn't be taken off them. So basically, those loyalty agreements have once again come back to bite the ARL. Uh, and basically, once Muller entered the picture and could work out a deal with Seagulls, then the Brian Ray bid, which, I mean, nothing's a certainty in rugby league, but you have to think that had a very good chance of securing their future and giving them real hope, at least in the short term, uh, that was now out of play. Uh, and so that unidentified property developer would soon very much make his identity known. Uh, And although he is a a mere footnote now, Jeff Muller in late 1995, early 1996, was an absolute cyclone of press and drama. And I can't wait to get into it, which you will hear all about uh, next week in part two, the conclusion of this Gold Coast saga. There's so much about this story that I still want to learn. And dig into. So, um, this one in particular, I would love any insight, uh, any listeners may be able to share. So please email the rugby league digest at gmail.com. If we have any, uh, members of the White Shoe Brigade, yeah, send us an email. Would would love to hear your thoughts. Um, but does anything sum up the Gold Coast, everything we think about the Gold Coast more than this saga?
2: Oh, hysterical, but also deeply saddening as a rugby league
1: fan. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, there's much more to come next week, so hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, and you will hear the conclusion next week. So we will speak to you then.
2: Toodle.